0: I want you to turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians 13, 11 to 14. If you have a Bible, then uh, you can turn to 2 Corinthians uh, 13. If you don't have a Bible and you want to look, um, you can um, grab one of the blue Bibles that are in the, the chair racks, scattered around around the chair racks, and you can find this passage on page 1234. It's not a particularly long passage, um, but because of that, actually, in some, case, in some uh, ways, it might actually be more helpful for you to, to look at it because we're going to be going through it in a little more detail. Now, like I said, um, this is the, the last week for the three-part series of, uh, of, of sermons that we've done focusing on some of the benedictions in the Bible. This is May Missions Month. Next week we're going to have a, a guest speaker, but the, over the last three weeks we've been focusing on these benedictions in the Bible, these blessings, and it fits with our, our concept of May Missions Month because the Bible tells us that we have been blessed and that we have been blessed to be a blessing, and that's why we've been looking at it. Now, this week, we come to uh, this blessing at the end of uh, Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church, and we're going to spend some time looking at why the wording he uses is so important. And let me then invite you to stand. I'm going to read this aloud. It's very short, Uh, so I'm going to read it aloud. And when I'm done, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. Let's stand together. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, 12, 13, and 14. The Apostle Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, we, um, we talked last week about the experience of God's blessing in suffering. In the very real sense, actually experiencing God's blessing through suffering Now, first of all, we talked about that because, well, we need to talk about it. Suffering is, is everywhere, but also because talking about the issue of suffering and God's blessing together raises some very important questions about the nature of the universe, about who or what is ultimate, about who we are, and about why we should even care about hurt and suffering at all. Now, we talked last week about some kinds of suffering that are a common experience of the world's brokenness right? Disease, natural disaster, those kinds of things. But other kinds of suffering result from conflict. They result from a lack, of, a lack of peace, a lack of unity, a lack of love between and among individuals and groups in the world in which we live, right? We see it in our local communities. Right? Someone said to me the other day they can't even bear to watch the local news anymore because it just seems to be like a, a, a listing of all the murders that have happened, Right? We, see it in our, we, we see it in our own homes, not, not murder maybe, although sometimes, but we certainly see conflict, the inability to get along, fighting, even hatred. But here's a question I want to ask and consider, and for, forgive me if it, if it comes out sounding a little bit overly philosophical or if it even comes out sounding a little bit callous, but here's my question about the presence of conflict and fighting in the world that we see around us, about the, the lack of peace and unity. Here's, here's my question. Why do you even care? Right? Why should we care? I mean, really, why does it bother us so much? Because if we are just simply a collection of random molecules formed by natural selection and evolving to some greater state through the survival of the fittest, then why do we instinctually rebel against the implication of that in almost everything we do? Right? Seriously, why do we care if that's all we are? and that is in fact the ultimate origin and purpose of the universe. If that's it, why do we care if a larger country invades a smaller country? They're bigger, they're stronger, why not? It's how the world works, survival of the fittest. Why do we care if someone with a bigger gun and the faster car steals something from someone and gets away? Why do we care if the bully picks on the quiet kid on the playground? We care because we weren't designed for conflict, for war, and for hatred. We were designed For unity, peace, and for love. Now, that's that's a nice thing to say. It's easy to just kind of throw that out there. But it's an impossible thing, unity, peace, love. It's an impossible thing to just make happen by saying it. But here's where the power of the the blessing comes in. Because God not only says it, God has made a way for that to happen. And that's the point of what I think this is telling us. That's the point. The unity, the peace, and the love for which we were designed and which we instinctually know is based and is only possible through the unity and the peace and love that exists eternally in the character and the work of the triune Christian God. That's a lot to say in one sentence. So let me say it again. Right. The unity and the peace and the love for which we were designed is based on and is only possible because of the unity and the peace and the love that has existed eternally in the character and the work of the triune Christian God. Now, to make that point, let's do a little detail work in these four verses that I just read. Under three headings, uh, the assurance of God's blessing, that's verse 11, the expression of God's blessing, verses 12 and 13, and then the basis of God's blessing in verse 14. Let's discuss this this idea. Now, first, the assurance of God's blessing. Okay, Bible study time. We're looking at verse 11. We can't do this sometimes when we have longer passages, and it's not always really necessary when you've got a narrative story or something in the, in the Bible, but with shorter passages like this that are just packed with meaning, it's fun to do. So listen carefully if you'd like and keep track in your head, but if you have a Bible it would be, it'd be useful to, to follow along word by word. Let's look at verse 11. Paul says, finally. Why? It's the end of the letter. Right? You don't need a seminary degree for this, that's why he said finally. The letter's over. He says finally. All right? He says finally, brothers. And if you're using one of the the blue Bibles from the chair rack, and you look at the footnote that's at the bottom of page 1234, you'll see that it says, or brothers and sisters. And this isn't just a modern um, apology for those ancient male chauvinists like Paul, right? No, this is actually common usage of the Greek adelphoi, right? The word for brothers. That it would commonly refer to brothers and sisters. A a brother and sisterhood. A collection of family. And it means, what he means, is that he's speaking to all of the Corinthians. All of them here as members of the family, part of a single community. And part of what makes that remarkable is the, um, is the aspirational nature of that. The conflict had gotten a little bit better from where it had begun in the city of Corinth and in the church of Corinth, and Paul talks about that in his first letter to them. It was pretty bad, and it had gotten a little bit better, but it was still there. And while he had started this second letter, the second Corinthians, he had started the letter by using that word, In chapter 1, verse 8, calling them all brothers, he actually spent a considerable portion of the letter without using it at all. And it was noticeably absent at the end of the letter up to this point where he had been giving some pretty stern warnings to the Corinthians, even raising the possibility that some of them may not actually have saving faith. But now at the very end, he returns to the word at the very end, hoping that his warnings and his admonitions have been heard, that they will be heeded, and he aspirationally calls them all brothers. And then he follows that with five quick, sort of rapid-fire commands. And they're all just just one word in the Greek, the present imperatives, which which means you should do these things and you should do them now, right? Present imperative. Do it and do it now. Now let's Let's look at them. Command number one, rejoice. Now, some translations simply translate it goodbye instead of rejoice, because this word, which which does actually literally mean rejoice, was often used at, a, at the opening or the, com- at the closing of a conversation, right? But it's more than just goodbye as in like, you know, see ya. It's, it's, probably, a, it's probably close, like I said, it's a command, but it's probably closer to what we would say when we say in English, be well, right? We say that like at the, you know, sometimes when we greet people, more often when we, when we leave people, and it is common, just a cultural kind of way of saying, okay, goodbye, right? Be well, but there's more to it than that. Right? It, it, it's, it's, it's saying, I want, you, I, want you to, I want you to be something. It's a goodbye that wishes the Corinthians to be well and a hope for their happiness, which is why the, the literal translation rejoices is appropriate. It is, a, it is a closing greeting, but it is also a closing greeting wishing them well and wishing them happiness. And the important thing is that when Paul says it, he actually means it. It's not just a throwaway line. He, li- he wishes them sincerely joy. In fact, he, in fact, he commands them to experience it. That's one. Now, command number two, aim for restoration. Right, if you look up at, uh, at verse 9 in that chapter, you see that this was the object of Paul's prayer. This is what he wanted for the people. He says, your restoration is what we pray for. That's what he says in verse 9 of chapter 13. Other translations would say, aim for perfection, right? Aim for restoration or aim for perfection, which also fits into the range of how you would use the the word. Now, I like restoration better, but understanding that it includes the idea of perfection is actually really helpful because it it gives you a sense of what's being talked about here. It's not just a partial restoration. Paul is looking for complete and total restoration back to the original manufacturer manufacturer design. He's saying, aim for perfection. That's command two. Now, command number three, comfort one another. Now, here again, you may notice the, um, the footnote at the bottom of the page. It says, another way you could translate comfort one another is listen to my appeal. Which may just cause you to kind of scratch your head a little bit and kind of say, they don't sound at all like one another. Right? They sound like two totally different things, right? which was my initial thought as well and let me just take because we have some time let me let me just take take a minute here and talk about this try to help because it's tempting to brush over stuff like this particularly when both of the options are reasonable biblical conclusions both are good neither are heretical either one you could support with other biblical texts right if it if you translate it and you say comfort one another that sounds like a good thing i could easily see see paul saying something like that makes sense or if he's saying, listen to my appeal, well, Paul's been making lots of appeals, so I mean, that kind of makes, makes sense too. And so it's tempting for us to kind of say, I just pick one, move on, who cares, it doesn't matter. Well, it matters, this is why it matters. It matters because if you do that, and if you do that repeatedly, it kind of just lodges in your subconscious as evidence that all this, you know, Greek manuscript, Bible stuff is just kind of like hocus-pocus for smart people, right? That somewhere someone is just picking and choosing what he wants you to think and that you should really just doubt all of it. Now, you may not consciously think that, but it, and it may not matter with a text like this, but that unspoken presupposition, if you allow it to kind of stay there and lodge there, it'll come back later if you just let it sit there. And it'll come back later on some more important issue, and you'll hear someone say, you know... You really shouldn't believe what the Bible says about this or the Bible says about that because, you know, after all, it's just a bunch of Greek translation hocus pocus. You should just pick what you want it to mean and that'll be good. Which is why I take a little extra time here and why we should go into a little bit more detail to show you that it's not, it's not magic behind the curtain, right? So, As to the apparent difference in these translations, comfort one another or listen to my appeal. Right? We well, should read a little bit more about that. Okay, what's the difference? The word, remember, these are just one word commands here in the Greek. The word has a range, actually, that can mean either to exhort, right, to appeal, to encourage. That's where the appeal comes from. It can mean exhort, encourage, appeal, or it can mean comfort. The original word could mean both of those. It's it's used in both ways in in ancient Greek. And it's not in the active voice. It's it's, it's in a voice where the action is either being done to the person or, or, or they're doing it to themselves. And so the way to put maybe the two options next to each other in a way that sounds a little bit more similar is Paul is saying, he's saying comfort one another, or he's saying or exhort one another, appeal to one another using my words. And there certainly is room for debating which one is is intended, but that needn't throw you into doubt. Instead, what the the range of the possible meanings should tell you something about how to understand whatever option you end up choosing. In other words, think of it like this: if you choose, comfort one another. Right? If 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 with your Greek, you know, PhD in New Testament Greek or whatever, you come and you say, I think, I think comfort one another. Is, is the better translation. Well, you shouldn't hear that then as simply saying, you know, comfort one another. Well, they're there. It's okay. Just forget about it. You're going to be fine. No, because you've done a little bit more work and you realize, okay, tied up with this idea of comforting one another is also the idea of truth that should be followed an exhortation an appeal to listen to what Paul has been saying. So, okay, all right, so now if, if I choose that translation, if I understand that translation of comfort, I've got a better idea of what that, that concept of comfort is about. Now, on the other hand, if you, if you, if you with your New Testament you know, PhD in, in, in Greek, you come back and you say, no, I think listen to my appeal is actually better or, you know, appeal to one another using my words. Well, you shouldn't simply hear that as saying, beat one another over the head with what I just told you. No, because the idea, because you've done a little bit more work and you see that there is this idea of of comfort that's tied up with the exhortation, then you understand that this appeal for and this desire for truth is wrapped up along with the desire for healing and and comforting. You see, the different options actually help you understand each of them, whichever you choose. I don't know if that's helpful. That's the best I can do. The bottom line is, is this, don't allow the limits of English translation to throw you into panic or doubt, The meaning of the Bible is not relative. It's not whatever you make it. No, instead, the limits of translation often actually just mean that the meaning of that particular text is richer and it's fuller than a translator can possibly capture in a simple English word or phrase. All right, moving on. Aside over. Command number four, agree with one another. Paul is saying, be agreed, or be in agreement. Or, as the New New International Version puts it, be of one mind. And this fits into stuff that Paul has said in other places, like in Philippians 4, toward the end of uh, his letter to the Philippians, he says, I entreat Judea and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Right? That's helpful, because he's talking about agreeing, but when he's talking about agreeing, he's not talking about agreeing about everything. He's talking about agreeing in the Lord. Now he explains himself in a little bit more detail with a little bit more relevance to the Corinthians when you remember that at the beginning of his first letter to the Corinthians he says something very similar but he talks about it a little bit more. Chapter 1 verse 10 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I appeal to you brothers by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And that's helpful because as that 1 Corinthians' letter develops, he talks a lot in that letter about he himself frequently bears with the differences that he has with other Christians about all kinds of things for the sake of the gospel. But he also makes that gospel the primary basis for the unity. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what he says and what he calls of first importance. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, This is what's of first importance. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so the closing command is the place where th- this is where the place of unity is found. This is where the agreement is found and, and where that unity ought never to be threatened. Right, I've said it before, I won't belabor the point now. But you have, we have, a greater bond of unity and we should act like it a greater bond of unity with a Christian on the other side of the world who is of a different race, different economic status, different national origin, and perhaps of a different political persuasion. We have a greater bond with them than with our next-door neighbor who wants nothing to do with the died and resurrected Jesus, even if that neighbor does vote for your candidate, root for your team, share your hobby, or went to your high school. All of those things, all those common affinities, they can be very good for for conversation. They can be very nice to have as a neighbor. You may agree on all of those stuff, all that stuff, but yet you are still in a unreconcilable state of disagreement with them about the one thing where true agreement is really required. And that flows into the last command, live in peace. Here we get back to this concept of of shalom, Not, not simply the absence of, of open hostility, like ceasefire. Not just that, but a state of, of full and complete and total welfare and prosperity and wholeness. Where good is sought rather than harm, where, where love is expressed without divi- divided loyalty, where all wrong is, is made right. That's what Paul is, is aspiring to. And then Paul says, and here's where he ties the whole verse up, he says, do these things and the God of love and the God of peace will be with you. In other words, he says, do you want the God of love and the God of peace to be with you? You want to experience the God of love and the God of peace? Obey these commands. And in them, you'll experience me. You'll feel the assurance of my blessing. Now, that's the first heading, and by far the longest. But the assurance of God's blessing leads into, let's move more quickly now, leads into verses 12 and 13, into the second heading. The expression of God's blessing, all right? If this is who we are, if this is, we, is this is how we are united and this is how we experience the unity and the love and the peace of God, right? Well, this, this is how it expressed. This is what it, this is what it looks like when God's, blessing, when God's blessing is present, right? Something different that makes other people take notice and say, hmm, that's different. Now, it's simple enough to, to read all the saints greet you as not very unique or not very different or anything like that. Someone else would would kind of say something like that when you, you know, when you close a conversation with someone, all the saints greet you. They say, yeah, say hi to Mary for me. Okay, all right. You know, give my best to your wife. You know, you hear that. Something like that. But this, anyone can say that. When you put the statement in verse 13 into the context of verse 12, though, you see that it's a little bit different. In light of your state of blessing, he said, you should greet one another with a holy kiss. All right, now let me dispense with the obligatory like caveats and disclaimers here, right? There's no hint of anything erotic or romantic here. That's probably why he used the word holy. And second, I don't believe that this is a universal command for kissing every time you see another Christian, right? The specific practice of, of kissing as done in the early church is to be understood in that cultural setting as a cultural expression of that time. But it is a cultural expression that expresses a universal principle that we should seek to apply with similar actions with the people around us in the church today. Now, what's that message? What's that common message that we seek to communicate? And I want to start with the fact that this is something that Paul says elsewhere. It's not just unique to the end of 2 Corinthians. He said it to the Corinthians at the end of 1 Corinthians as well. He also said it in Romans 16, and he said it in 1 Thessalonians 5. And it's not just Paul. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 5. Greet one another with the kiss of love, he says. So it's not just a Corinthian thing. And it's not just a Paul thing, but it is very much a Christian thing. And from what I was reading, what I was listening to this past week, this was not at all common everyday practice in the Greco-Roman world among people who were not related. This was not. This was different. This was weird. The kiss of greeting was usually reserved for family, and even then, usually just reserved for family on special occasions, formal family reunions, right? Was also at times used among family. Sometimes with that, with those who are not family, as a sign of formal reconciliation, right? And but but as such, it was a it was a big deal. It was not a common kind of thing. It was a symbol that there had been a unity broken and that that breach was now was now covered. Right? Let me tell you brief story that may kind of illustrate it with a different kind of, you know, act of kind of common affection, but that carries a greater meaning. You may have heard, you may remember the story of the, the Dutch Christian woman, Corrie Ten Boom. I've told it before, we can't tell it in detail now, but she was uh, sent to the Nazi concentration camp, her and her family, because they had been hiding Jews in their home. And after the war, Corrie was at an, uh, at an event speaking about reconciliation and forgiveness. She survived. And she was talking about the reconciliation and the forgiveness that she had found in Jesus. And one of the former prison guards, someone she remembered as a particularly cruel guard from the camp, approached her and told her that he had repented to God for what he had done all those years ago and had become a follower of Jesus. Now this, up to this point, was all fine and good. And Corey could listen to this and she could intellectually assent, even be glad about what God had done in the life of this man. But then the man did something The man lifted up his hand and offered it to her. Offered his hand. And now this was different. This was a bridge now that seemed (laughs) seemed a little bit too far to, to cross. Now she did take the man's hand, but not without considerable effort. And as she describes it, not without the real power of the evident power of the Holy Spirit working through her. But what it illustrates is the depth of reconciliation and forgiveness that is contained in, that is even required by even just a simple gesture of affection like a handshake. I have to imagine that's probably similar to what Paul himself experienced when he came into the Christian community. Imagine that, we told a, we're told a little bit about it in the book of Acts, but can you imagine what some of those conversations would have been like, what it would have taken for, for Peter and the original disciples to have welcomed into their fellowship this guy who was a Christian hunterer, a Christian murderer, Saul of Tarsus, what it would have taken for them to witness, to, to, to take them into their, into their presence? I don't know if they kissed or not, but it's that kind of radical reconciliation, that bond of unity that's symbolized here. Whatever cultural form it takes, we should express our affection and our unity with other followers of Jesus in a way that is unique to what the outside world thinks of when they think of unity. That's the expression of God's blessing. Now, finally, the basis of God's blessing. Look at verse 14. This is the actual this is the actual benediction itself. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And here we have the only Trinitarian blessing in all of Paul's letters. Right? Big Christian word alert. Trinitarian. Right? What does that mean? Well, it means that God exists and always has existed in three persons and one essence. That's why we went through the, the answers to the Shorter Catechism. Right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Now, it's important to say that Paul is not, I don't think, trying to explain in any kind of detailed or systematic way the Trinity here. He's just pronouncing God's blessing with the full presumption and assumption that it is true. And what that means is that, you know, we should be cautious about overreading into this short little statement a detailed explanation about the Trinity, but that doesn't mean that we should just brush by it, because what it assumes, that this is the God of blessing, this God, this God, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is the foundation, the absolute foundation for the unity and the peace and the love that we all desire, all right, first of all, just look at the awesomeness of what is being declared upon the Corinthians in this blessing. Grace. God's undeserved, God's unmerited mercy towards his people that grants them forgiveness of sin and restores them to a place of status and favor. Grace. Love. God's affection, his loyalty towards his people that takes care of them, that protects them, that defends them. Fellowship. God's nearness. His presence, that, does, that doesn't just command us from afar or instruct us from afar, but actually comes alongside us to encourage and to empower us in our daily lives. Grace, love, fellowship, that's what we have, that's what we are when we're blessed by God. And that's, why I go, that, that's where I want to go back to where we started. Because in the actual benediction of verse 14 itself, we see the only basis of, for unity and peace and love in the world in which we live if you were if you were here in sunday school last week hugh wessel missionary to france presented to us and he said he actually mentioned he said he said this is actually how i approach conversations with people who are followers of one of the world's other you know unitarian religions right like islam right where where there is one god but there is not three persons he says this is, this is where i start this is the conversation that i had with him well then where do you get love and if you look at the quote on the front of, the, of the, the bulletin, the quote from C.S. Lewis, it's from his book, Mere Christianity, and he makes the argument pretty simple to follow. He says, the words God is love, and that's not just a platitude that people throw out there, that's what it says in 1 John, right? The words God is love, though, he says, have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God were a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. Now, this line of argumentation is not unique to to Lewis. Here's another example. Richard of St. Victor, he was a 12th century, a Scottish theologian. That's the 1100s who have trouble, people have trouble like me kind of translating. 12th century, 1100s, right? Richard of St. Victory, Scottish theologian, he was actually ministering in France as well. And he said this, he said, One never says that someone properly possesses love if he only loves himself. For it to be true love, it must go out towards another. Consequently, where a plurality of persons is lacking, it is impossible for there to be love. In other words, Hugh Wessel, C.S. Lewis, Richard of St. Victor, right? What they're saying, you cannot have a basis for real love unless it comes from a God who is love. And a God who didn't have love from eternity past, a God who has not always been love, is a, is a God who at that point is lacking and therefore not God. For there to be love, you must have a God of love. And you cannot have a God of love unless you have a God that exists eternally in multiple persons exactly as the Bible reveals Him to be. Now, I suppose there is a you know, a philosophical attempt to get out from under this where you can just conclude, concede the argument and say like, all right, well, there isn't any such thing as love, right? You could just conclude that love doesn't exist and then you don't have any need for a God like that, right? There are those who would actually attempt to make that intellectual argument that love is just a, you know, love, a desire for peace, that they're just, they're just conditioned evolutionary reflexes. At The products of chemicals and natural selection that enable life to be tolerable. Right? This keeps us from prematurely going insane, allows us to live long enough to, to reproduce, sort of tricks us into a desire to pass along our genetic code, right? But in that case, if you grant that premise, then love is just, a, it is just at the end of the day, an illusion. It's just a charade. And while some may intellectually... ...function with the idea that love is not only useful, but that it is real, that it's true. And I would argue that everyone acts as if love is real, acts as if deep down we know that it's real, because it is real. The Christian has a different truth to offer someone who would just view it as a chemically induced response, a different premise... A premise, I would argue, that actually requires less faith than believing that the love that we experience and feel to be real and feel to be true is just a chemically induced accident. No, what the Christian Christian faith offers is a truth that the reason why you desire peace, the reason why you have this desire for, for unity, a desire for love, is because you bear the imprint of a God who is eternally all of those things in His very being and character. The the Christian faith offers a truth that tells us that we have been shown grace by the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can experience fellowship with that God. The grace that we have been shown by that Jesus, remember the one one who endured the, the, the kiss of betrayal himself so that we can receive the kiss of reconciliation truth that the blessing of God is not a blind wish, but that it is a definite reality. The, um, the famous Bible teacher, Donald Gray Barnhouse, uh, was once staying in a motel in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and while he was there, he had planned to spend the whole day actually in the, in the motel room where he was staying, reading and writing and working on a project that he was, that he was working on, and um, and so when the attendant came in, the, the maid came in to make the bed and fix the room up and clean things up and stuff, he asked her, he said, "If you could just, he said, by all means, you can make the bed and, and, and straighten things and stuff, but if you would just leave my books and leave everything, and he, you know, his Bible was sitting by the typewriter, they had typewriters back then, and he, he said, like, you know, if you could just leave the Bible, and she, he said she seemed particularly interested in the, in the Bible. And so he started asking her a little questions. He said, like, you know, he said, are you, you know, do you, do you have a relationship with, with Jesus? And she, she said, oh yes, I, I, I do. She said, I couldn't have lived my life without him. She said, my mother died when I was a little girl. This Jesus has been my help my entire life. And he pressed her a little bit farther and he says, do you, do you, really, do you really know that or is it just something that you kind of think? Is something? She, she said, no, no, no. She said, I don't just reckon. I know. See, Every week, when we end the service, and I pronounce the benediction, the blessing, it is not just aspirational. It's not just something that we say, hoping it will be true. Not just something that we kind of collectively wish to be true. It is something that is true. And so, receive the blessing of God, knowing it's truth. You don't just have to reckon. You can know. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of who you are, because as you reveal your character and your nature to us, we don't just have an intellectual understanding of who you are. We have the very basis for the experience that we desire. Lord, fill us with a love that we cannot manufacture on our own. Help us to understand the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ shown to us, the power of the reconciliation that you have made possible through the cross. Help us to glorify you and praise you because of it. And help us to tell others about it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.